In 2007, Daniel Gilbert, who was or is a Harvard psychologist, released a best-selling book called Stumbling on Happiness. Now, it begins with a thought experiment, something that he calls the sentence. And it's meant for the person that's reading it to fill out in the end. So, for instance, the, the sentence is, the human is the only animal that fill in the blank. And so for the reader, it's up to you to define what makes a human being a human being. Now, this author, who's a a, a secular psychologist, I think he gives a rather insightful answer to his own question. He says, the human being is the only animal that thinks about the future. I think that's an interesting answer. And he goes on to say, we think about the future in a way that no other animal can, does, or ever has. And this simple, ordinary act is the defining feature of our humanity. So what does he say it is that makes us human? It's our ability to imagine the future. See, our imaginations, we know this, can conjure up all sorts of realities that are absolutely staggering. They can imagine and actualize things that they imagine. Things like skyscrapers and spaceships, vaccinations and virtual reality. We've seen the ability of the human mind to dream something up and bring it to fruition. But unfortunately, because of sin, we see how it also can conjure up terrible things too. Human beings have dreamt up slavery and sex trafficking, warheads and witchcraft. We have a great ability with our imagination to see a future and to work towards making that future a reality. I would say to us, that is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That we do have an imagination, we do have an ability to be creative like God is creative. And as Christians, the joy of this is that our imaginations are shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ and His coming kingdom. See, when that trickles into who we are, when we uh, are made new in Him, our imaginations are shaped by His vision for the world. And so we can work towards these things even in the here and the now. And the reason is because Christians see through all the facade of power and politics and they, say that they see that Jesus is the King of kings. And he sets the agenda for the way the world conducts itself. And so, by looking at his life and his teaching, understanding his ministry and his message, he forms our imaginations with hope and love. And so our imaginations then are moved by reverential worship to God. We all know what this is. It's been so stirred up in our spirit when we come and sing these beautiful songs and pray together. We're moved. We, it changes who we are. And our imaginations are, are shaped and compelled towards loving action, towards people that live around us. See, this, we've seen this all throughout Christian history. Christians have imagined things like hospitals and universities and shelters and orphanages because we've seen how Jesus heals the sick, how He teaches the ignorant, how He welcomes the poorest and lowliest into His presence to come 
be with him. When we see Jesus and how he treats people, it shapes our imagination for how we as Christians can treat people. So how we live in this present world is, here's a staggering reality, is based on our, uh, how we can imagine Christ will come and rule in glory. We give to people that are hungry because we know that one day when Jesus shows up, nobody will go hungry any longer. We, uh, we build hospitals and, and send out missionaries because we know that one day Jesus will banish all sickness and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, how we see Jesus now shapes how we live for the future. But here's a sad reality. If we're not careful, we can let the influence of this fallen world shape our imaginations even more than the gospel. We can let our minds be totally dominated by panic when we watch cable news. We can be totally outraged at everyone and everything when all we do is scroll through social media. Because we'll let those things determine what our imagination can see. And what those things will uh, help us to imagine is fear and hatred. And it's so much easier to fear and to hate than it is to love and to hope, isn't it? As sinners, that comes more naturally to us. So how do we as a church, living in our complicated and erratic and divided and hurting world, how do we with our minds, our hearts, and every part of our lives, physical and spiritual, orient ourselves towards God and His future for us and His creation? How do we do that? Well, as you might imagine, Paul gets to that precisely this morning. Now, we're at the halfway point of the Apostle's letter. And so far, just as a way of a reminder, he's done two major things in his writing as he's preached to the Colossian church. First, he's expressed gratitude that these people are following Jesus, that they see Jesus as the center of their life, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords because they see Jesus as the creator of everything and everything good, and he's the redeemer of even bad things and people. So he's expressed gratitude that people see that. Secondly, he's encouraged them, because they see that, because that's who they are, to remain faithful to the good news of Jesus' kingdom, even when it means they'll suffer for it. And we know there's a lot of suffering to be had in this world. And there's suffering to be had because we follow Jesus. So now Paul, based on those two things, is moving on to this new and incredibly hope-filled part of his letter. Despite the sufferings and the hardships, and because Jesus is the Creator and the Redeemer, what does that mean for us when it comes to how we live out our Christian life in this world? How does us following Jesus create in us, or rather, how does uh, um, uh, what Jesus is doing in us create a new kind of humanity in us? That means that we look different, we act different, we believe and hope differently than we once did and we once were. And what does this look like now in this redeemed and resurrected life day-to-day in practice? Not just in theory, but 
but in practice. Well, we're going to get to a little bit of that this morning. But let's look at these first four verses together. Last time, Paul was telling us about how we have died to the pressures of our world. Whether they're pagan pressures or Jewish pressures, we have died to those expectations that religion or whatever place on us. But Paul doesn't stop there because the good news of Jesus doesn't stop with death. The gospel doesn't end with the death, the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, and that's the end of the story. If that was the end of the story, Paul says in another letter, then we are wasting our time here in church this morning. But it doesn't end with a burial. It ends with a resurrection. After death must come resurrection. And that's where Paul is picking up today. Verse 1, he begins this. So, we've died to the old ways, to the old world. And now, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now this is easy to pass over as something that's... Yeah, we've heard that many times before. It's... It's an amazing truth, though. And it deserves us slowing down. The Apostle is telling us that if you belong to Jesus, not only at some point will you rise from your eventual death and be reunited with Him in a resurrected body. Christians look forward to that moment. That's what gives us hope when days are hard. But Paul is not only saying that will happen, he's saying that you already are in some sense, raised with Jesus right now, who has ascended to God the Father and reigns in power. Right now, Christian, you have been resurrected and are reigning with Jesus. Now, how is that possible? Because the reality is this. What God has promised, what God has promised will come to fruition He has already accomplished for us. See, it's not up to us to fulfill these promises. He's already accomplished these promises for us. It's not up to us to make it so. God has already made it so for us in Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a word of good news to me. Because it takes the responsibility the responsibility I know I can't live up to off of my shoulders and places it on the stretched arms of Christ on the cross for us. I have trouble not worrying about the future. It doesn't matter how many times I read in Matthew. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't worry. You see how the Father cares for these sparrows? You see how He cares for the flowers of the field, how much more does He care for you? It doesn't matter how often I read that. My sinful and disbelieving heart will worry. I promise you, before this day is out, I will worry about something. I'll probably worry about something I say in this sermon in just a few minutes. I have trouble not worrying. I have trouble not thinking about, okay, how do I need to be saving for the future. Okay, how, how do I need to be preparing? What things do I need to attend to? What things do I need to anticipate? 
But the Christian hope that we read about in one of my favorite verses of the Bible, Philippians 1.6, that Paul says, I am sure of this. He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know why Paul is so sure of that fact? Because it was God that began the work. Not Paul. Not Peter. Not any of us. What God began, you can be sure He will finish. If you've died with Christ, Paul wants you to know now that you also have been raised with Him. You will be raised bodily, resurrected one day, but he's saying functionally and essentially you already are raised with Him now. You are living in a resurrected life even in this old body that needs resurrection one day. And if you belong to Jesus now, you're alive in Him again. If that's true, if Christians really got a hold of that truth and really believed it, how might we have a new lease on this old life? If we are really, truly raised in Christ How then should we live here in this present moment? If the news is that sure, if the promise is that sweet, how should it affect how we live right now? Paul answers in verse 2, or or in the remainder of verse 1 and on into verse 2. He says, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he clarifies that in verse 2 by saying, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Now let's break that down. What, what things above and how do we seek them is he talking about? Now as, as, a, as a kind of pause in our, our thinking here for a moment. I, I'm sure you've heard the expression before that someone is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Someone is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. In other words, they're so religious, so churchy, so sanctimonious that they only seem to be able to think about heaven. You can't talk about going to the grocery store and getting bread, and they'll say, well, I'll tell you the bread that's really good, the bread of life, brother. You know, that kind of stuff. You're like, all right, right, relax. We probably all know people that are like this, who seem that uh, are so uh, thinking about the future that they just seem to ignore the very real situation of the day, the problems of the day, because... Heaven's always right around the corner. And in a sense, that's admirable. It is. But in some sense, it's also a very naive way of thinking. Because it bifurcates. It it divides the Christian life as the Christian life is not... It's only about the future and glory when we're up floating with Jesus in the sky and it has nothing to do with the here and the now. This is, it makes it seem like this physical life that we're in here, this really has nothing to do with the Christian life. But the problem with that way of thinking about heaven or the future or resurrection is that's just not how the Bible conceives of it. The great irony of this is that the biblical view of heaven is not about some ethereal cloud city we go to like in Star Wars. The biblical view of heaven, if we look in Revelation 21, at the very end of the Christian Scriptures, when John sees a vision of the future that is coming for all of creation, at the end of history, it's not some otherworldly space existence. What it is, is a new heaven and a new earth 
taking the place of this old one. See, God didn't make a mistake by creating planet Earth and human and plant and animal life and putting us on it. That wasn't a mistake. That was His intention for all of history. He's not going to wipe that away and we go like in the Tom and Jerry cartoons just in, the, you know, in a white cloud city forever playing harps and we all kind of look like the Gerber baby. That's not what the Bible shows us. The whole goal of the kingdom of God is not to take us away from earth to ever, but for God to come and live on earth with us forever. A new earth. Why do you think Jesus taught his disciples when they said, how should we pray, Lord? He says, pray this. He doesn't say pray this way. He says, pray this. Matthew 6. Your kingdom come. Not take us away from here. Your kingdom come here on earth. Your will be done how? On earth as it already is in heaven. See, the vision that Jesus gives them is one day these two realities that have been divided by sin, heaven and earth, they're not going to stay forever away. They're going to be reunited together. Heaven and earth together. God and man dwelling in peace forever. That's the vision of the Christian life. Jesus came not to destroy our world forever, but to redeem it. To restore the paradise that we lost so very long ago. And Paul makes that case in Romans 8 also when he says the whole earth is groaning in anticipation for this. Not that it will be, it's not groaning because it's, it, it thinks hellfire is awaiting it. No, it's groaning because it knows that one day it'll be fully redeemed and resurrected for all eternity. When God says we are a new creation, He means it. We are not only a new creation, we are a new kind of humanity. See, the old humanity, as as typified in Adam and Eve, Jesus comes to replace that by being the new Adam, the new human. See, that's what, you know, so often when, you know, it, when people say, oh, I, you know, I messed up because I'm just human. Really, that betrays that we think inherent to being a human is being messed up. But when we look at Jesus, we see what humanity really ought to look like. Perfect, forgiving, loving, redeemed. That's what humanity ought to be. That's what God intends for it to be. And it will be one day. So God has made the church into something unique in human history where we're free, finally, to reject sin. We don't have to be uh, the slaves of Satan and his schemes anymore with all the violence and hatred. We don't have to do that anymore. We can reject that and instead love God and serve one another because that is the humanity that Jesus has secured for us. And now He's in God's domain ruling and reigning, this is staggering, through us, even in the here and the now. Do you want to know how the kingdom is coming into this world? It's coming through the heralding and ambassadorship of the church right now. And through our gospel witness, through our benevolence and works of mercy, we show to be true that Christ is redeeming and resurrecting this world. Even now, even when 
we seem like we're in the most dire straits we've ever been in. That's precisely where God loves to work. Friends, because this is true, as Christians, you never have to feel insignificant again. You never have to have this low self-esteem. Oh, I'm just a, you know, I can't do anything right and I can't, you know, I'm messed up with my family and friends. So you don't have to think that way because in Jesus, God is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth through even you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that thrilling that God would look at this small church of imperfect people and say, these are the people who will herald in my coming world. What might that look like in our life? If we took that seriously, if we really believed that, what might that look like for us? It means that we don't operate the, world, the way the world tells us to operate. We don't have to scheme for power and pleasure and money and control. It means we can imagine New ways. Our imagination can be shaped by Jesus, the agenda He sets for us, where we love God with all our hearts. It's not religious hypocrisy. It's sincere love of God where we can serve people that the world despises and passes over. We can serve the widows and orphans, the prisoners and immigrants, the minorities, the poor, the disabled, the elderly, all these groups that the world has no time for because they don't help the stock market or whatever. That's exactly the people that we get to love freely because Jesus loved them with His every ounce of being. All these groups that the the world looks down on as a barrier to their comfort and self-importance are the exact people that Jesus tells us to love. Not a single one of them is an inconvenience. All of them are loved radically by Jesus. And that's how we show a new world is coming. By loving the things that the world despises as weak. The Gospel of Jesus is this. He doesn't snatch us away to live in the clouds and and play harps or do whatever and just be bored for all eternity. I remember as a child thinking, what if heaven is just, it looks like a church service, but it's just kind of, we're on top of a cloud now. And I thought, that sounds like hell to me. I don't want that to be heaven. That's, again, that's Bugs Bunny view of heaven. That is not the biblical view of heaven. The biblical vision of life is life abundant in Jesus. Even here and now. Jesus didn't say, I came to give life and life abundant one day. He said, I'm starting with life and life abundant even now. In Him we are free to imagine a future. A future where we can work for the good of one another, but not do it with toil. A future where we can rest but we're not bored. A future where we can be in community and have no strife. A future where we can live life and not be weighed down by sin at all. That's the world that's coming for us. And do you want to see this this future come to earth? Well, guess what? In the church of Jesus Christ, He's making this future real by us living out very ordinary lives together. Do you want to see this future come? You can start right now practicing for it by being a good employee, 
by being a caring citizen, by being a faithful family member, a kind neighbor, as you meet together with the brothers and sisters to pray and fellowship and tithe and serve as you read the Scriptures, as you're baptized, as you take the Lord's Supper. This is exactly how God in Christ by the Spirit is birthing a new humanity into this world. How He is saving and remaking the world into something good and true and beautiful again. Friends, the Christian life is very ordinary and very practical. We don't have to jump through all these Gnostic hoops. We don't have to be rich or have a lot of knowledge to enjoy it or experience it. We simply have to continue following Jesus and discovering all along the way God's surprising new graces for us each and every morning. We discover, as verse 3 claims, that if we die to this world, our lives are now hidden with Christ. What does that mean? It means that we are so bound up, we are so inextricably connected with Jesus that you can't separate us anymore. Our lives are so hidden in His. When you look at Him and you look at the church, you can't tell the difference between the two. Even though the church, as we see it, is full of sin and strife. But the reality of how God sees it, it's so connected and bound up with Jesus that when God looks on this sinful, selfish people that He calls His own, all He can see is the goodness and grace and glory of Jesus. Verse 4 assures us that as we are bound up in Jesus and His work in this way, so will we be bound up with Jesus in His glory in the future. Now Paul shows us just how radical this resurrected life is. As new human beings who are now eternally connected to Jesus in this way, we are totally free to take off the old rags of our old and dead humanity. Paul lists two ways in which we once were wrapped in mummies rags, essentially, of, 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 of a selfish way of living. He li- one list he starts in verse 5, and one list he starts in verse 8. And the first list has to do, this is, I know it's uncomfortable for us to talk about, has to do with sex. And the second list it has to do with speech. And these are two crucial aspects of our human experience. And and Pastor Tom Wright talks about this. He says, these things, sex and speech, both have incredible potential for good in our world. They're gifts that God gave us to have a beautiful way of living. First, we see in marital intimacy between spouses, it brings life into the world, brings children into the world. It quite literally produces a future for humanity. Life goes on because of this wonderful gift of the Lord. And secondly, good speech likewise produces life. When someone speaks blessings of of hope and faith, words of encouragement, think of how that opens up a future to people. Can you think of times when you felt so down and out, so discouraged, so lost, and somebody came along and spoke words of encouragement and compassion to you, and it totally changed you? How is it that a word... Just speech can open up a future to you. That's a gift. Only God can conjure. We're pressing, you know, we're, we're using air through our vocal cords and, and, and making sounds, and that can change people. 
spiritually. That's, if, that sounds like magic to me. God gave us these two gifts to be a blessing, to give life to this world. But just as these two gifts have untold benefits, think of how sin has caused people to use these gifts to hurt and manipulate and destroy one another. Both sex and speech are good gifts of God. He gives to humans, but in the hands of our adversary, they become tools of abuse and devastation. And we've seen, oh boy, have we seen in our recent life how they've been used to hurt one another. Paul lists five things here in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, and we're not going to break down each one of these words means, but you get the gist of it as you read it. You know what these things are about. And Paul is saying, this is the way we once were. This is what was in our heart before Jesus came in. And notice how he talks about these things here. And what he lists, do these things strike you as considerate and healthy and loving? No! Every single thing he lists here is selfish and deceitful. It's all about using another person to get what you want. It doesn't matter if they're destroyed as long as you get what you need. These things don't build a future, though. They don't open up new paths for us. They destroy our future. They destroy us. Which is why Paul calls all these things together idolatry. That's the biggest problem that God has with idolatry is that it leads us into death and hell. It leads to our destruction. And God is all about our life and our future. They worship self while despising the one true God and the people that He made in His image. These are old rags of a dead humanity And Paul says, take them off and throw them in the fire. In the Colossians day and in our own church, we constantly hear that sex is only about our own pleasure. Whatever matters to us, whatever makes us happy. But that's an evil way to think. And we must put it to death, Paul says. Why? It's because God hates it? Does He hate sex? No! Not at all. God made it. He designed it. It was meant to be a blessing, a comfort, a life-giving encouragement to human beings, but within the self-giving covenant of marriage and for the sake of bringing life into this world, within that context, it's a wonderful gift, a sacred gift to humanity. But the enemy has deceived us and totally warped our view of it. We only need to skim the headlines these days to see how terrible the nature of harassment and abuse has been within all industries in the American life. And very sadly, the church is not uh, immune to this. But a sex that only worships the self is not actually giving life in the way the world preaches. It's not free. It's not freedom as the world preaches. It's life-destroying. You know, I realize, friends, this is not an easy topic to listen to or to think about. It's awkward and uncomfortable. And so often, when I'm looking at what we're going to be, I have to be preaching about, I think, 
Lord, give me a break. (laughs) But this is the reality. This is the world that we live in. And Paul wrote about this because Christians need to hear it. It might not be good for polite company. I understand that. We show wisdom and discretion while talking about it. But Paul brings it up because whether we want to admit it or not, this is a major part of the human life and experience. Our world is constantly trying to give meaning to God's gifts independent of the God that gave it. But only God can give meaning and purpose and texture to His blessings that He has given us. Without His wisdom, these gifts are turned into weapons that we wield against each other. And verse 6, Paul reminds us that not only does God give good things, but He also punishes those who decide to use these good things for evil. Verse 6, then, I believe, gives real hope to those that have been abused and mistreated with these gifts that God sees how they've hurt and He takes that seriously and He will not let the guilty party go unpunished. Right now in our land, churches like ours, even as small and as sweet as ours, are dealing with all kinds of catastrophic realities about this stuff. Years of cover-ups of sexual abuse and manipulation. And now more than ever, what the church needs to do is to strive in each local congregation to love and protect women and children throughout this. There is no benefit to the church lying and hiding and trying to Put sweep stuff under the rug. Because the Lord says, everything that's done in the dark will be brought to light. How has it worked out for any of the churches of any denomination to hide the abuse that has gone on in their churches? Has it helped them? Or has it exploded and the world has looked and said, all they are is a religious cult that practices a, a thing that they preach against? And it, 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 it brings shame and disrepute on the name of Jesus because we are not willing to deal honestly with these things. We must be willing to provide care for, love, healing, and restoration to people that have been affected by this stuff and not shame and questioning and skepticism to them. But the reality is we're human and imperfect and we cannot always see the reality of every situation, and we can't execute justice the way that we always think it needs to be done. But I'm going to tell you this. As your pastor, I want you to hear me say this, church. Verse 6 is meant to be an encouragement to anybody that survived any kind of trauma because of, 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 of sexual abuse. It is supposed to be an encouragement that God cares about your suffering in that way. Not only is God good, though, He's just. And so, on the other hand, this is supposed to be a reminder that His wrath is coming on all those who unrepentantly twist this good gift that He gave to humanity to hurt and abuse His image bearers. So here's the dual reality. If you are hurting, you can know that even when the people around you don't understand, Jesus understands. He knows your suffering and He loves you 
and joins you in your sorrow. He will cover and restore and make whole all who come to Him, no matter what's happened to them. That's His promise. But on the other hand, we need to know, if you're the one that hurts people using this, using sex, know that you can find redemption and forgiveness because Jesus died on the cross for sins like that. But Christian, repent and believe the Gospel. Because the wrath and justice of God will be swift and terrible against those who use His gifts to in the dark hurt one another. Don't wait until the end of your life to do something about it. Begin with repentance now. Paul is not playing around here, folks. Sin is an enslaving tyrant. It's not little naughty things we do to get on a cosmic Santa's nice or naughty list. Sin is a tyrant that deceives you. It's, a, it's like a Venus flytrap. It smells sweet. But you get inside and a vice grip of death will crush you. Remorselessly. But here's the good news. When Jesus died on the cross, He stripped sin of all its final and ultimate power over us. He dethroned the devil in that moment. He harrowed hell on Saturday. And by raising up on Sunday, He destroyed death. His is the only true power in the universe. So Christian, why in the world would we ever want to continue walking in the dark of Satan's wasteland? Why tarry in the spiritual graveyard like the demon-possessed man that we read about in Mark's Gospel some months ago when Jesus has not only freed us of our chains, but now He's freeing us of our old humanity. Paul tells us that we're no longer slaves to what we used to be slaves to. We don't have to be bound by the things that used to bind us. And in the same way, we don't have to speak the way that we used to either. So in verse 8, he talks about another gift of God, speech. But he talks about how we've used it all wrong. He tells us to put off our old talk. Don't speak with anger or wrath or malice, slander, filthy language, and lies that we read about in verses 8 and 9. In other words, because we're Christians, not only should our actions towards one another be good and loving, but our speech should be too. Oh, goodness gracious, the church in America needs to hear this again. We speak, we are so cruel. We're so used to pundits going on these talk radio and talking about human beings like they're animals. We've started to think that's an acceptable way to talk about people. You show me in this Bible where Jesus speaks harshly towards sinners. He speaks harshly towards the religious hypocrites that think they're above this. He speaks only sweetness to sinners. Folks, we don't talk defensively or mean-spiritedly. I don't care if that's what your favorite politician does. That's not how you talk. 
We don't have to utter curses over people who have hurt or humiliated us in the past. We don't have to slander people we don't like. We don't have to speak lies about ourselves to cover our tracks. We are free to speak truth and blessings over a lie-addicted world. Do you want to be radical in this day and age? Start by speaking kindness. Even to people that don't deserve it. Because that's what God in Christ has done for you. You remember when he shows up in, in John and that woman is caught in adultery and they drag her out half naked and a bunch of men want to stone her and humiliate her? Jesus writes, starts drawing in the sand. We don't, scriptures don't tell, tell us what he writes. A lot of theologians say, oh, he's writing lists of sins and says, which one of you Pharisees is not guilty of one of these? Then you pick up a rock and kill her first. They all went away. Do you remember what he says to this woman? Who's here to condemn you? The Lord and the flesh is here to condemn you. He could actually do it. But you know what he says? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. What if we treated people like that? They come before us in their shame and indignity and we could say, you really messed up and you did this thing wrong. We have every right to get our revenge against him. But we say, I don't condemn you because Jesus doesn't condemn me. This is what Paul means in verse 10 by putting off our old self and putting on our new self. That is our new identity. Our old self was all about getting what we want but our new self our new humanity our resurrected life doesn't lead us to selfish pleasures or doesn't lead us to destructive words it leads us to be so wrapped up in jesus that somehow just somehow we even start acting and speaking and looking like him in this world and people can see the difference have you ever just met a person that is so entranced by the love of God that you, it's like you are like a, drawn to them like a magnet. I'm convinced all Christians could be that way. The only thing that's holding us back is that we want to cling to these old rags instead of ripping them off and being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. See, for too long we've conceived of righteousness as this, this robe uh, that repels sinners. But the righteousness of Jesus that we see lived out in His life draws sinners unto Himself. That's real righteousness. Self-righteousness may be repellent, but Jesus' righteousness draws even miserable people unto Himself. To put on Jesus means we wrap ourselves in that kind of righteousness. It means to be daily reminded of His goodness. To follow after His path by, by loving and valuing the people that He loves, namely sinners. By seeing that He heals people in their sexual brokenness. That He speaks words of love and hope and encouragement and forgiveness to people. And as Christians, folks, we can look a lot like that. We can't be Jesus to anybody, but we can begin to look like Him. That doesn't mean we'll dress like Him. I certainly hope we're not. You know, nobody comes in wearing a tunic and a red sash. That's probably not what He really wore. 
That's just what all the art shows. But we may not look like him, but it means that our lives and our hearts will be dressed like his. Our imaginations will be shaped by his image, who became a human being, who humbled himself to become a a, a man so that we might actually be more human in him like we were supposed to be all along. This means, as verse 11 shows us, that we, all, we are all really one in Jesus. We, we see a bunch of words here we don't know, barbarian, Scythian, all, we don't get all that stuff, but let's put it in a context we do understand. To be newly human in Jesus, doesn't mean, it means that wherever you've come from, whether you come from somewhere in Europe, or India, or Mexico, or wherever you may be from, You may vote differently, talk differently, dress differently. You may have white or brown or black skin. You may have long hair or facial hair. You may have a few wrinkles or a few tattoos. But in Jesus, we all now look the same even in our differences. Because we've all been redeemed sinners that have been given this new and resurrected life to share with a world so dire in need of God's kingdom. And that's the joy of the resurrected life. Let's pray. Lord, help us by the power of Jesus who lived, died, and rose again for us. Open up Your kingdom to us. Help us to worship You in spirit and in truth. To love and serve our neighbors so that Your kingdom may come quickly and help us to live a resurrected life together in Jesus. For it's in His name that we ask and pray these things. Amen.